Welcome to Reinventing Nerds. Dr. Joni Cannell shares communication strategies for technical people. She shares her own stories of learning to communicate and brings in other nerds and experts to show you how to interact with people in a way that's comfortable for you. And now, here's your host, the uniquely qualified engineer-turned-psychologist, Dr. Joni Cannell. Hello, welcome to Reinventing Nerds. Today we have a special guest, Asim Giri. He is one of my creative people and loves creativity as well as the technology. So it's going to be a real fun show. He has over 20 years of experience as an entrepreneur, a private equity investor, and an investment banker. He's also really fond of art and the creative side, serving as an art advisor and a financial advisor to art-related businesses. And Asim has his own podcast as well, Achieve. I highly recommend you give it a listen. He loves talking to people who share their journeys of facing adversity and overcoming obstacles. So we have a lot to talk about today. Let's get right in and say hi. Welcome, Asim. Welcome to the show. Jenny, thank you so much for having me. That's great to have you here. So I was thinking about this and I'm going, you know, we were, we're talking about creativity and the difference between creative sort of and so maybe the engineering side of things. And I thought, wow, you know, I haven't really had somebody talk about creativity since the first episode of Reinventing Nerds. And so we're circling back and getting a different perspective. And I can't wait to hear about that. But I want to start a little bit with your tech background and investment and your financial side as well. So having this, this trajectory of not being a straight line into where you're at now, I was wondering if you could just give us some background on how you got there. Yeah, it'd be uh, my pleasure to. So I was actually born in Germany to parents of Indian origin and then migrated to the States when I was young. And we lived basically within a 90 minute drive of New York. So uh, Central Jersey is where I went to elementary school, high school in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, uh, then college in Philadelphia, and then followed a very traditional path in terms of finance. And so did an investment banking two-year analyst program with a bulge bracket Wall Street firm called Solomon Brothers. Uh, back in the day, that was in the mid-90s. Uh, of course, the firm doesn't exist anymore. It got gobbled up by Citigroup and is a part of their lore. Um, uh, from there, I, uh, I made a career objective to go into private equity. So moved into private equity in New York um, and then made my way out to California about 20 years ago and uh, joined a, a firm out here. Uh, worked my way up to partner. I was one of two people initially in the office and grew that to about 12 pro professionals and got promoted to partner along the way. Um, but I always had this entrepreneurial spirit to, to me and uh, wanted to uh, branch off on my own and, and launch my own fund, which I did, which uh, uh, fundraised uh, using capital from uh, mostly Southeast Asian um, investors. Um, managed that for a number of years and then um, life threw me a curveball. Um, and I'll never forget because I spent about 18 months doing the fundraising and, and had a lot of doors slammed in my face uh, or, or rejections. And you, you do the fundraising process thinking that you're not just raising for one fund, you're going to be raising multiple funds. And I was 28 or so at the time. And I thought by the time I'm 45, I'll have billions of dollars under management and I'll be on fund seven. Um, but uh, as I mentioned, life threw me a curveball, and that was that my son, who's now 12, uh, when he was two and a half, he was diagnosed with a rare blood disease, 
called severe aplastic anemia. And uh, I, I made the clearest decision I've ever made in my life. I dropped everything I was doing and I focused on him. I had three portfolio companies at the time. I was able to sell two of them. The third I shut down. Um, but it, I just, I always marvel at the lucidity of that decision-making process. I mean, I've, I've deliberated on every other decision in my life. Do I go to this university? Do I go into this profession? Do I join this bank? Do I marry this woman? Everything. But this was very clear. Uh, and I, I'm so thankful for it. Um, you know, uh, to fast forward, my, my son is uh, cured now. Thankfully, we've been through two bone marrow transplants to get him there. But you know, the fact that he's still with us is a miracle. Um, but uh, I'm so thankful for that. And uh, at the same time, I lost my mom to lung cancer. And so, wow. you know, as I think about personal journeys and what impacts us, that those two events really had a profound impact on me. And I didn't want to go back to managing a fund. Um, it always sounds very glamorous, but uh, you have a boss. Your boss is basically your investors and uh, you are subject to their whim. And if they want you to come and have a chat with them because they have some anxiety about investment path that you have or what you've just uh, uh, put money in. You have to, you're on a plane and you're placating them and, and so forth. So uh, I became an entrepreneur and given the, the situation or the health issues that my family members had gone through, health and wellness was very meaningful to me. So um, I ended up um, uh, starting uh, health and wellness businesses. And, and I became a serial entrepreneur. I've actually founded and sold three different wellness businesses. Um, and, uh, and I appreciate your comments from the intro, Joni, that uh, I do have a passion for art. It's been a, a lifelong passion, but it was really after the sale of my third company that I got more actively involved in the art world and became an active collector. Um, I've also gotten involved with a business in the art space because I just couldn't stop thinking about ways to, to add value in different segments. Um, and now, uh, in addition to uh, hosting the podcast, which I appreciate you mentioning, I also am involved with another wellness company. Um, and in this one, uh, again, I, I always think about ways to add value that's very meaningful to me. Like if you don't add value or solve a problem for a customer, you don't really need to exist. It's a big mantra of mine. Um, and so I've always been um, uh, moved by how many friends of mine say that they would love to meditate. They understand the benefits, but they just don't know how. And mm -hmm. so I thought, we have to address this problem in some form or fashion. And so a partner and I have come up with virtual reality-based meditation, immersive experiences. And so wow. what we tell people is don't think about whether you're meditating or not meditating and don't worry, you know, am I doing this right? Is this working? Just put this headset on and submit to the experience. Be present with it. It's, you're going to the movies. That's all you need to think about. And so more often than not, and, and, and the, the experience, Joni, is a, a set of uh, sound-based and visual-based stimulation. Um, so what happens is that, um, and I believe uh, the, the person experiencing it, their, their thoughts become structured. And so the attendant benefits that usually come with meditation, such as lower cortisol levels, emotional regulation, all inert to their benefit. It's a bit of a biohack because some people have criticized it in that way or commented that it's not real meditation. And so the spiritual aspects are not being attained. And I thought, well, 
if you want to adopt those, then there's a certain discipline that would be required to really get the meditation process right. But if we can get you to a place where you have these benefits, I think that uh, that's a good thing. And maybe the hope is that if you taste it initially, you see the potency of what you get as a result, you might be more driven to try and do it the, the natural way. Interesting. That is so interesting. It's actually, I mean, I think about with emotions, sometimes they say if, if you want to be able to feel a certain way, like happy, mm. if you just put your mouth in the position, you know, you curl your lips up and you crinkle your eyes and do this, that it will generate that emotion physically within you. And so there are ways to create it by, you know, cognitive first approach versus like the physical first approach. And it, it sounds like you're going at it that route. And uh, it could have the same effect uh, and perhaps even get you thinking different thoughts as a result. Yeah. Yeah, that would be ideal. I mean, there's numerous benefits to to meditating. And, and one of the things we actually focus on some some categories of uh, high performance, high stakes situations. So um, first responders, firefighters, mm-hmm. policemen, um, but also surgeons, um, hedge fund traders. Um, the The Keith issue is, and of course you, you would know this best, um, you know, when, when the brain is occupied with stress, it, it, it's a gating factor. And so we're less receptive to our outside world and, and perceiving opportunity or perceiving solutions to problems we're presented with because mm-hmm. we're kind of occupied with the fight or flight mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, meditation sort of puts quells that it it quiets that down so that you can have a wider uh, perceptive base to to see opportunity and so uh, I'm a big sports fan I I love European Mm -hmm. soccer and so I often think about that as uh, an example you know if if a player is under duress or stressed about his her performance they're not going to see the various opportunities on the field and so being calm and keeping your headspace in a good place is so, so critical there. But then that extends into a lot of business settings. Right. And frankly, all of our technical people are, who are listening are really under stress all the time. And that's one of the things I hear from them a lot is how do I manage that stress? And this sounds like something that could be very appealing. Oh, I hope so. I mean, I can only yeah. imagine with deadlines and uh, turnaround on, on, on uh, upgrades or adjustments to mm-hmm. to products uh, and software systems. Um, it must be really untenable pressure. But uh, you know, grounding and 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 through this mechanism, I think could be very potent. I would also hope that the firms would focus a little bit more on balance, (laughs) have a little time for life in addition to work. Uh, That's part of uh, another approach that we need to be working on from both ends there. Um, Absolutely. We're hoping to engage in some of those conversations, Mm -hmm. um, particularly in Silicon Valley, um, because they're more amenable to thinking about that work-life balance and and how Mm -hmm. to enhance productivity. So great suggestions. Well, I want to ask you a few questions because your career, you've talked about going and being in the financial space, investing, moving into wellness, and also art. So that's a lot of different domains. You have a lot of vast array of experiences with different kinds of people. And I was wondering if you might be willing to talk a little bit about, you know, maybe comparing and contrasting some of like the technical uh, versus the wellness or, or creative kind of people and 
you know, what kind of challenges you see on the people side of it and the leadership side? Absolutely. I'd be happy to. Um, I often find that the, the wellspring of brilliant ideas come from creative creatives and, and I include uh, engineers in that uh, category, uh, technical people who have a solution to a problem. Um, and I've been blessed where I've been able to approach several of these folks and say, this is what I want to do. Is it possible? And uh, I give them space and time and they come back to me and say, well, we can do this, this and this, and then it'll take a little more time to be able to do that and the other thing. Um, but, uh, what I found in interacting with them. And of course I end up in that role being the, the sort of the business guy who's sort of setting the deadlines, trying to get mm -hmm. the resources and the funding um, around there. And um, what I've really learned is that you have to give a lot of roaming space to your creatives, uh, whether technical people or artists, if you try and corral them too much, um, you're not going to get the best possible work out of them. Um, the best people will, will deliver. They'll give you something, but it's not going to be the best that it could possibly be. And so it's um, uh, what I found is, is um, be liberal with the deadlines and maybe even come up with some false deadlines without telling them. And then that's an opportunity to check in, see how it's going. And then when they ask for more time, you reluctantly give it to them. It has to be a little bit of a some gamesmanship there and some, but mm -hmm. you know, you don't uh, put your enterprise at risk by giving them that space. You, you just, it's the business person. You really have to bake that in and, and plan for it. Um, but um, you know, you're looking at it as an enterprise or a business that you've, you've gotten capital for, you have to give a return to your investors um, or maybe, you know, if it's a larger corporation, there are shareholders involved. So that's your headache. That's your problem. If you've got the right technical person or the creative, they just want to come up with the most elegant, brilliant solution they can to a problem you've posed to them. That's their intellectual puzzle. That's what gets them mm -hmm. jazzed up. You don't want them worried about cost. You don't want them worried about timeline. You just want them to really deliver the best they can. And so you have to manage and massage the parameters and give them enough time and space for that to 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 come to fruition. And that, that's where it's been the most successful in all the different businesses I've been involved with and endeavors I've had. When I've given them the creatives uh, and the technical people the time to develop, I'm most happy. And we're most successful when that happens. That's huge. I mean, so often people are under pressure and, you know, just to do things quickly. And you're saying, actually, the best solutions have come up when you've given people time. What about the competition, though? I, mean, that, I hear that a lot in tech, you know, someone else is going to do it first. You know, how does that factor in? That's so interesting. And it might just be my own personal orientation because I'm never intimidated by competition because I always feel like, we're going to find a niche that is ours. And what I tend to do in the various companies I've been involved with is I've always tended to target the kind of uh, the elite segment, um, the segment that's least price sensitive, because okay. my orientation is we're just going to wow them with something that is so bespoke, mm -hmm. so sophisticated, that they're going to be price insensitive. They're not going to, you know, and, and we're going to make our margin back in that way. So, um, you know, I, <laughs> I was involved with businesses where we were selling $120 yoga mats and we were mm -hmm. selling, 
uh, $260 yoga pants. It was, um, I mean, it, the margin was insane, but we were giving them this mystique or this experience that was so um, special. Uh, and, and so that's kind of, I, I like focusing on that market mm -hmm. or that segment. And it ends up being a smaller piece of the overall, but I guess naturally I tend to gravitate towards that as opposed to trying to go for the billion dollar opportunity. Um, that being said, in, in terms of more technical examples and businesses I've been involved with, um, you know, I was involved with one company where we we're making thermal printers and they were going into um, different settings. And, and this was an example, it wasn't bleeding edge technology. We didn't, hadn't invented thermal printing. That's been around for, for decades. And then the original fax machines, if you might recall, Joni, were mm -hmm. all thermal printing based. Um, and so the verticals were gas station pumps um, and, and slot machines. Um, and there were some electronic voting and, and things like that that were also there. Um, there was a powerhouse already in the, uh, in the, in the, in the uh, gas station pump business. And so we went after gaming and just sort of made a name there, but really focused on customer service and coming up with the best possible solution to the problem and then giving ourselves the time to do that. Um, and so we had a commanding market share in that vertical. And I think that kind of made the difference. And so they were relatively price insensitive because we were solving a problem for them that, um, uh, that, that was a bespoke solution. Um, some other, other examples there, but I don't want to uh, yeah. <laughs> dominate it. With no, this. that makes sense. So I'm curious, I want to talk a little bit about the people side of this. When you're coming up with these solutions and you're investing in companies, you know, you must run into different kind of personalities or different types of people uh, and these different scenarios. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, I mean, I, one of the things I see is when people invest in a company, they have these great, either creative people who have come up with these great ideas or these very entrepreneurial people who are great at putting something together, but may not be the right person to lead the company to the next level. And, you know, sometimes that can go smoothly. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, sometimes they can develop and not, but from the investor side, you know, I hear like, well, we're going to invest in and we're gonna have to get rid of that CEO. What does that CEO look like to you that you're going to say, nope, they can't, they can't bring it forward. We need to replace them. Oftentimes, uh, that CEO may have been the founder or the originator of the idea and has a technical skill set or a pulse of the market that is valuable. And so it really becomes about uh, putting them in a different role in the business um, and, and where they can add value. So they could be a founder and maybe they're the CTO or, or maybe just it's a founder title and maybe we've sort of decrease the number of hours there they spend. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's almost um, counterintuitive. Sometimes the passion that it takes to come up with a problem or a solution, uh, sorry, come up with a solution to a problem, um, isn't the passion that can commercialize it in the most effective way. And so uh, there's often conversations around that, that you know, you're, you're just, you're not the person to be the face of presenting it to all these different companies. And part of it is that um, they're so close to it that criticism really hurts and they tend to mm -hmm. take it personally as if mm -hmm. it's because there's this natural tendency, if you're the founder, that 
you, there's no distinction between you and the company. You're the, like the company is the alter ego of you. Mm-hmm. And that's very, it can be dangerous. <laughs> I mean, it can be very mm-hmm. successful, but it can also be very dangerous because you will get criticized no matter what, you know, which company or which sales process you're going through. And then that criticism can be used to make it stronger, the product offering you have. Um, but oftentimes founders end up in this rut where they take it personally and they get offended and then the reaction goes badly. And then a potential for a customer who could have been there in 12, 18 months as you develop the relationship is now gone. Uh, so there can be some, some liability in that way. Interesting. That's one way of looking at it. The liability from the investor's point of view, right? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, I guess I was wondering if you might have any examples of, of situations where this has come up and maybe a good story or so uh, where you've dealt with an engineer who uh, is really reacting badly. I mean, how does that manifest? What kind of things show up for you? In several occasion, on several occasions, there's been issues where um, what I perceive to be the MVP, the minimum viable product, and what they perceive it to be is, 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 is a chasm. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm interested in getting something out there that people can react to. And, and you, oftentimes the engineer just wants to make it even better or enhance it or, no, this isn't quite right yet. And we think we've heard the hackneyed term, an over-engineered product. Yeah. Um, so that, there's always that tension of when do you take it out and bring it uh, to the marketplace. Um, in other arenas where I've seen that kind of uh, come to bear is um, in transactions where there's a sale of a company or maybe we're taking new investors, bringing new investors in, and they remain having a large uh, ownership stake. And so, of course, they get a seat at the table to discuss. and. Mm-hmm coming from a business standpoint, it it seems very straightforward what we should be worried about and the rationality behind it and maximizing return. But oftentimes, um, there are different factors that are coming to the mind of a founder or an engineer who's personally invested. And they may have been slighted by an investor in a prior round, and they want to use this round as a way to I'll uh, say euphemistically make amends and uh, yeah. <laughs> a more negative connotation. It could be perceived as retribution and right. you know, they're saying, no, this has to be done this way because they said that at that time mm-hmm. and you're trying to explain to them like uh, that doesn't make sense in this context. Like that issue was at that moment. Now that doesn't exist today. So uh, what exactly are you asking me to do here? Um, and so it's just the sort of non-financial motivation or, or drivers there that uh, come from a place of, of, of personal uh, experience. And so um, I've run into those issues from time to time. You know, it's so interesting that you say that, Asim, because so often from engineers, I hear we have to make a rational decision and based on the data and this and that, right? And, you know, the talking about your feelings or those kind of things or the soft skills it's like whoa that that, we got to take that out of it i want to eliminate those to make the decision yet you're the one saying that it's the engineers who are having these emotional reactions to it and having that self-awareness that that they are coming up and driving this is huge. I think for people who are listening, the uh, the technical people, the entrepreneurs were saying, oh no, we're going to make it all based on the business decision. But 
these things come up whether we want them to or not. Yeah. So, no, they're definitely there. And one uh -huh. thing that I had to learn is uh, the, the, uh, the importance of credit. Mm. Whose idea was it? Mm -hmm. um, which isn't something that I had given enough credence to or really respected enough when I first started out. It's, you know, because ultimately in my mind it was, well, if the company makes money, then everyone's doing better. And of course that's the investor orientation, but um, who gets the credit, who was the originator of an idea has strong importance uh, among creatives. And, and I respect that now and I have a better mm -hmm. appreciation for it, mm -hmm. but you can't just, uh, you know, the idea, you know, intellectual property or whose name goes first on a patent is yep. all, these are, from my seat, you know, seem like minor things, but they're a huge deal if you're the one who came up with it or you've had the blood, sweat, tears or the, the ingenuity to come up with a solution. So sometimes yeah. navigating that. There's no money that can speak to it. <laughs> right. No, that's so, I mean, I see this a lot in the life sciences, for example, the scientists, people who have more of an academic background and really wanting the credit. Um, and you're right that it's, it's not a financially based decision. It's just purely on what they feel like they deserve. And right. so sometimes in a negotiation, you know, there's, we think about, it's all about the money, but no, giving some credit can really yeah make a huge difference credit so, visibility yeah. being seen being heard mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. contribution yep. um all of these are the kind of um uh, soft uh, uh soft matters or issues that that people really value so it's mm -hmm. it's important not to discredit them yeah no that that makes a lot of sense it sounds like you're really savvy and it might have <laughs> taken a while to get to some of these realizations but Sometimes we think it's, like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we're, we're trained in, in the technology and the, uh, in the financial, but not to say, actually, this whole decision is based around, you know, what someone feels that, that, that you never apologized or you never, you know, told them they were right or whatever it is, you know, that it can, it can well, stop a lot of money from changing hands. It really can. And, and, and to give you just another example of that, I mean, there were often times when I was a partner in an investment fund where we were bidding against other private equity funds. And so my secret tactic was um, I would leave these voicemail messages at night <laughs> when, because uh, we were, were actually, you know, prohibited from interacting with the management team. But if they didn't okay. answer, then I felt like that was okay. okay. And I would sort of, I would try my best and I know I was faking it, but I was trying my best to geek out on those messages and Hey, did you see this article in nature or did right. you see this article in science? Like, really provocative stuff i mean is it, it, if it, somehow we can make that a part of our vision that would be great and and so they developed this level of comfort or uh, mm -hmm. in that way um and and i just banked on the fact that the other private equity bidders were not doing that and we're kind of they're just very finance oriented but uh, and so often so there were some situations where we were not the highest bidder but we ended up winning because they wanted to work with us as opposed to another group. Yeah, that sounds like building relationship too. I mean, you weren't able to build it in that way you were talking about because you couldn't actually have that interaction, but learning what people's interests are and building the trust and rapport, that's another factor here that sometimes we don't always pay as much attention to as we should. It's, it's critical because, um, especially in your partnership 
like that. Um, someone is less likely to burn you or do something behind mm-hmm. your back if they consider you a close friend or a confidant. If, if they know you, then they're, they're more likely to tell you about a problem that's mm-hmm. brewing as opposed to keep a lid on it. And that's, yeah. that ends up becoming so important because if you, the sooner you know about something, the more options you have to address it. You know, sometimes you learn about something too late and then you're just very limited in how you can recover. Well, Sim, I want to ask you about your podcast as well and give you an opportunity to tell our listeners if they want to listen to something else a little different than what we're doing here. Tell us about Achieve and how people can get in touch with you or uh, have a listen. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. It's, uh, you know, the website is achievepodcast.com. Um, the genesis of it came from being in private equity and venture capital and hearing pitches from entrepreneurs. Uh, and now I've morphed my, my business into a family office and I'm doing angel investing. So I'm being presented with opportunities often. Um, I, I really have always uh, more moved by the entrepreneur's story. Well, what brought them to this idea? Why are they the right person to do it? What experiences have they had that um, bring them to this? And then oftentimes if um, there's a personal narrative or something that has uh, sparked their passion, um, that's really what I'm looking for. If, if they're in it to make money and you can often decipher that or, or, or vet that in a conversation about mm-hmm. their life journey, then you, that's not a company I want to be backing. And I think a lot of investors don't want to be backing because um, it is a tremendous amount of work and effort to get a company off the ground. And so I want the guy who's, or the, the, the woman who's motivated to get out of bed at five in the morning, even though they're exhausted because yeah. there's a big mission that they're hoping to accomplish. And if it's just for money, then they may say, Oh, forget it. I'm going to sleep in until eight. <laughs> it's human nature. And um, I mean, so in realizing that I was just very moved by these stories, I decided that um, other people might find inspiration from it. And, and I also, you know, my, my podcast launched May 1st. I was also looking at the unemployment numbers that are happening globally, but also in the United States. And I thought, you know, there might be many of those people who have been furloughed or, or, or laid off from their jobs who should be entrepreneurs. They should branch out and do something on their own, but maybe they're not feeling the uh, inspiration to do it or motivation or, or, or the confidence. And maybe hearing these stories of others who have done it might, might feel that. And so I'm particularly interested in stories of people who have faced adversity or overcome obstacles, which I was thankful to you to mention in the outset. Um, and kind of following this nonlinear path, because I think those are where life's lessons really lie. And uh, I've had a number of guests say, you know, um, so many interviewers focus on their successes and the great things they've done, but few want to sort of dive into the less successful parts or the failures. But ultimately, that's where, you know, whether it's grit or, or just the experience or the the perseverance, the tenacity, that's where it all gets made when, when we don't get what we want. And um, I mean, every successful person you can think of has that in their background. We just don't hear enough about it. I like the way you have a, a nice approach about talking about um, the, uh, the barriers, adversity, overcoming obstacles, because I've heard so much about people dealing with failure, you know, that's kind of an in word for a while, all the failures you've had, but you're saying it's not even just a failure. It's just things that come your way or things that you have to overcome 
And, sure. you know, when all of a sudden, like you, like with your own story, you're plugging away and it's really, you know, great trajectory and it just, you know, punches you in the stomach and you're like, well, what am I going to do? I'm going to change everything. And, and these are the lessons you like, what is important? You found that out instantaneously. What was important to you at that point? Yeah. So it's That's so good. perfectly said, yeah. Joni, yeah. like, uh, you know, what are you going to do? That's the fundamental question. And then there are people whom, you know, they face this kind of adversity and then they buckle under the pressure and then they, they collapse and they can't tolerate it. They can't deal with it. Um, but I'm really fascinated by those people who step up, rise to the occasion and, and come up with a solution or find a way. And maybe it takes them down a completely different path, but they didn't allow that to consume them. Yep. Yeah. And for those people who are in despair at the moment, I would say it's not too late <laughs> that you can go through it and then feel bad for a while, but then it is time to pick yourself back up and, and move on and no, it can be done. Yeah. And what's also, what's always fascinating to me, Joni, is that um, people who go through the, the this traumatic experience or, or these problems will often reflect back that that wasn't the worst thing that happened to them. It was actually the best thing that happened to yeah. them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, well, I'm going to leave it at that because that's a great way to finish up your episode, it seems. So it could be the best thing that ever happened to you. And uh, thank you so much for being a guest. This has been really enlightening and, and interesting as well. So thanks, Asim. My pleasure, Joni. I appreciate you having me on your show. Well, thanks to all our listeners at Reinventing Nerds. We're here at ReinventingNerds.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And we'll see you next time. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Reinventing Nerds and encourage you to apply what you learned to help you communicate better. For a free consultation with Joni to see how she can help you further, please visit ReinventingNerds.com. Until then, embrace your inner nerd and remain true to yourself while you develop your communication strategies.